The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. Today is the fifth day of our spring seven-day session, September 2018. We're going to continue um, reading from and commenting on passages from Mud and Water, the collected teachings of Zen master Basui, translated by Arthur Braverman. And we're going to be um, skipping around a bit, we can start um, more or less where we left off. And th this section is called The Six Supernatural Powers Are Seeing One's Nature. So th this section is a series of, of where the the questioner will throw a piece of sort of Buddhist teaching at Basui, and he'll um, see it in terms of um, realizing our nature, our true nature. Questioner. If one who sees into his inherent nature immediately attains Buddhahood, would he possess the six supernatural powers enjoyed by Buddhas? Basui, seeing into one's inherent nature is possession of the six supernatural powers. Questioner, seeing into one's inherent nature is one of the six supernatural powers. How can you say it is all six? Basui, Buddha nature is from the outset master of the six sense organs. To keep the master pure and not be stained by the six dust producing senses is called the supernatural powers of the Buddha. So again there's um, six sense organs are um, ours ordinary senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, sensing, um, we're missing one, smelling. And the uh, six dust producing senses are the um, smells, tastes, touches, etc. So he's saying not to be, not to be stained by these um, contacts is called the supernatural powers of the Buddha. We we become stained by these sense impressions because we. Um, cling to them or are averse to them. Questioner, that's not what I heard. As I understand it, the six supernatural powers are clairvoyance, clairaudience, mind reading, knowing past lives, flying, and the power to stop deluded thoughts. How can one attain the six supernatural powers through this one attribute, this one attribute of realizing one's nature? Um, some people have this um, interest or fascination with uh, the supernatural, the things like psychic powers. Um, they want to they want to see these powers, perhaps to prove to them that. Um, a master is a master. He's got he's got special powers. Um, see this a little bit more um, among Asian Buddhists, or at least I have, and perhaps it's because um, 
have less, uh, perhaps stronger faith in the possibility of these powers, um, or at least less skepticism about them. But really, all, all the masters have 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 pointed to these things being kind of a, a side issue, not concerned with um, what really matters. Basui responds, why should this limitless wonder of our inherent nature be nothing more than the six supernatural powers? This infinite light shines of its own accord and watches over all. It is nothingness. It is a wonder. It is silent. It illumines. Though forms can be seen, one is not deluded by them. This is clairvoyance. Here of um, the words of um, Layman Pang. He said, My magical power and spiritual exercise consist in carrying water and gathering fire firewood. He's talking about. Um, what would have been a daily activity for um, most of the people of his time, except perhaps the aristocracy. We would translate that into our time, we might say, a daily, uh, uh, my magical power and spiritual exercise consist in boiling the kettle and washing the dishes. It's worth hearing the rest of this um, poem that Lehman Pang wrote. He said, um, In my daily life there are no other chores than those that happen to fall into my hands. Nothing I choose, nothing reject. Nowhere is there a do, nowhere a slip. I have no other emblems of my glory than the mountains and hills without a speck of dust. And then he finished with the, the famous two lines, my magical power and spiritual exercise consist in carrying water and gathering firewood. Point here in the rest of his verse is um, nothing I choose, nothing reject. Just to respond to what's in front of us. Spiritual powers are beside the point, really. No more, no more extraordinary, really, than mountains and rivers, moonlight and rain. Basui continues, he's, so he's set out um, what clairvoyance is, now he goes on to the other five. Buddha nature is pure and unstained. When sounds are heard through the ears, the echo of vibrations is clearly discerned. And yet there is no dependence on discriminating thoughts. This is clear audience. Just hearing. The sound prior to any additions we make to it. When you clearly understand the nature of your own mind, you will realize the oneness of the minds of the Buddhas of the three worlds, the ancestors and ordinary people of this world, and heavenly beings of other worlds. 
This is the power of mind reading. The oneness of the minds of Buddhas and ordinary people, all beings. Actually, in the light of this truth of the oneness of all beings, um, so-called um, supernatural powers, mind reading and clairvoyance and so forth, aren't so extraordinary. From the moment you, in, you realize your inherent nature, your mind will penetrate through eons of emptiness that preceded creation through to the endless future. Clear and independent, it will not attach itself to the changing phenomena of life and death, past and future, but will remain constant without any obstructing doubts. This is the power of knowing past lives. Experiencing this reality in which we live uh, timelessly. Time is a, is a is a construct. When you understand the nature of your own mind. It will thoroughly light up the dark cave of ignorance and the original natural beauty will be manifest. In an instant you will pass through the ten directions without stopping in the blue sky. This is your inherent nature's true power to fly through the air. When you understand the nature of your own mind, delusions will change into wisdom. Because Bodhi is your original inherent nature, it transcends delusion and enlightenment. You won't exist among saints and sinners and won't be stained by the various phenomena. This is the power to stop deluded thoughts. So there's a lot in this last one. We won't exist among saints and sinners. We won't um, think in terms of I'm a, I'm a sinner and I'm an ordinary being and he's a saint. When you understand the nature of your own mind, delusions will change into wisdom. It's, it's um, important to notice here that he doesn't say uh, you won't have any delusions. He says your delusions will change into enlightenment. Delusion, delusions may arise, but one recognizes them. This is, this is the, the, the not being stained by the various phenomena. So the, the power to stop deluded thoughts is really the power to um, stop them before they, um, before we act on them, before we get caught up in them. One of one of the ways that this this uh, um, truth is illustrated in the in the sutras is. Um, Throughout the Buddha's life, throughout his his uh, forty years of teaching, he would sometimes be visited by Mara, the the uh, personification of of ego and separation, death. And uh, so, he, although the Buddha was enlightened, he still got visits from Mara. This, I think, we can take a lot of comfort from this when when we look at what comes into our minds um, 
we get visited by Mara. But what happened uh, with the Buddha is that Mara might come in a disguise, but at a certain point, the Buddha would recognize him. And he would say, is that you, Mara? And immediately Mara would kind of slink away, unable to get any purchase on the Buddha to, to um, mislead him or delude him. So, so we, can, we can understand this as um, deluded thoughts arise even after awakening, even after uh, deep awakening because of habit energies that still are in play. But then the key is what do we do with those habit energies or those those thoughts that arise due to our habit energies. <clears throat> Next section um, is headed karmic affinity for the way. A questioner said, within the teachings it is said that it is easy for one to believe if the karmic relationship with the teacher is right and it is easy to enter if the karmic connection to the way is right. Then no matter how hard I practice the Kensho road to realization, I could not be expected to reach enlightenment if my past karma was not right. Should I first try to practice a way that would set my karma right? Sometimes we can have doubts arise as, as we, we sit struggling with our mind, seeming to just um, be faced with the same stuff over and over again. Um, we, can, we can have the thought, maybe I'm just not cut out for this. Or maybe... Um, Doubts will come about whether whether doing the right practice or or working with the right teacher. Maybe there's a, a more effective practice or a um, a better teacher, a more enlightened teacher out there somewhere. Maybe I should do X workshop or or go on such and such a course. Maybe that would help. So he's, this is this is really what he's asking for. What, what if, what if I don't have a strong karmic connection to this practice? What should I do? Is this something I can do to increase that sense of connection or, or karmic um, rightness? Basui responds. It is evident that some people have a karmic inclination for the way and others do not. Even if someone were to reach a way of, of heretics or of evil spirits or liberation for oneself only, rather than that is the, the Bodhisattva way, those who have a karmic affinity with a teacher, even in a previous birth, will believe his teachings and call him a great teacher. In other words, even if he's um, a deluded teacher. On the other hand, if even if one were a Buddha or ancestor, without a karmic affinity for a teacher, one would neither believe what he says nor want to be near him. So he's saying that um, if you you can have a karmic affinity um, and believe a teacher even if they're teaching something false or you can meet with a, a Buddha 
and um, neither believe what what he says or want to be taught by him. This first one perhaps explains why there can be false teachers who do the most egregious things, um, different kinds of misconduct, and yet they will have disciples who remain fiercely loyal through all that. We can put we can put this down to uh, the strength of, of karmic bonds. And then on the other side, even even the Buddha. Um, uh, didn't reach everybody he encountered. There's a, there's a story of right after his great awakening, when he's he's um, sort of returning to the world to teach. Um, he he has an encounter with somebody who um, sees that he's uh, emanating um, some energy, something something's going on and so he he asks this this person asks who are you are you a god and the buddha says no and then he says are you uh, are you the avatar of a god and the buddha says no then are you a saint and he says no and then finally he says well if you're none of these what are you and the buddha says i'm awake a famous exchange but what often isn't told in in telling this story is that apparently this guy said pr pretty much said oh, oh okay and wandered off <laughs> what what a missed opportunity the buddha fresh from his the seat of enlightenment and uh, yeah okay So um, people without any any karmic affinity, even for the Buddha, uh, Basui says, would try to go far from where he dwells and slander him. During the time of the Buddha, there were some who slandered him and became disciples of heretics and demons. Whether you follow the right path or not depends on your karmic inclination. Even had, the Buddha even had uh, persecutors, people who tried to harm him, including his his own cousin, uh, Devadatta. Then, then Basu goes, goes on to say, but these these false <coughs> teachings and um, our connections to them um, are not permanent. He calls them, um, he calls these different paths temporary dharmas. He says, hence there will be those with karmic inclination towards these dharmas and those without such inclination. With the true dharma, however, there is not a single person who hasn't the karmic inclination toward it. So whether he is a beginner or an old practitioner, layperson or monk, it goes without saying that all who believe wholeheartedly will attain Buddhahood. When talking about this, therefore, we can call it the right Dharma, the original face of all Buddhas and ordinary people, the master of seeing, hearing and perceiving, the 84,000 skin pores and the 380 joints. Our whole body is the Dharma body. What ordinary person does not have a karmic inclination for the way? How could we not have a karmic inclination to realize our birthright? To realize what we've inherited from our parents? There is no ice or snow apart from water and the Buddhahood of ordinary people 
can be likened to snow and ice melting and becoming water. That's all we have to do, actually, is melt. All the ingredients are right here, but they become solidified through our habit forces. We don't have to bring anything in from elsewhere. We just have to dissolve. There is no ice or snow apart from water and the Buddhahood of ordinary people can be likened to snow and ice melting and becoming water. From the beginning nothing has ever been lost. If one says he has no karmic inclination toward the right Dharma and first wants to practice a method to make his karmic connection, it is like a wave in the ocean searching for the ocean, saying it has no karmic inclination toward it and hence must seek out a means of making this connection. Like one in water crying I thirst. Isn't it just like Yajna Data searching for his head on top of his head, thinking he has lost it? Um, this story um, comes from one of the sutras. It's the Sharangama Sutra, and it's um, it's told by Yasutani Roshi in the Three Pillars of Zen. Uh, except in in uh, in Yasutani Roshi's version. Um, uh, Yajnadatta has now become uh, started off a male is now female in this version of the story and the Japanese name uh, of her is Enyadatta it's a kind of little le legend or parable and, and it goes like this Enyadatta was a beautiful maiden who enjoyed nothing more than gazing at herself in the mirror each morning. One day, when she looked in her mirror, she found no head reflected there. Why not on this particular morning, the sutra does not state. At any rate, the shock was so great that she became frantic, rushing around, demanding to know who had taken her head. Who has my head? Where is my head? I shall die if I don't find it, she cried. Though everyone told her, don't be silly, your head is on your shoulders where it's always been. She refused to believe them. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Someone must have taken it, she shouted, continuing her frenzied search. At length, her friends, believing her mad, dragged her home and tied her to a pillar to prevent her harming herself. The being bound can be compared, and this is Yasutani Roshi explaining, the being bound can be compared to undertaking zazen. With the immobilization of the body, the mind achieves a measure of tranquility. And while it is still distracted, as Anyadatta's mind was in the belief that she had no head, yet the body is now prevented from scattering its energies. Slowly, her close friends persuaded her that she had always had her head and gradually she came to half believe it. Her subconscious mind began to accept the fact that perhaps she was deluded in thinking she had lost her head. Enyadatta's receiving the reassurance of her friends can be equated with hearing the Roshi's commentaries or Taisho. Initially these are difficult to understand but listening to them attentively, every word sinking into your subconscious, you reach a point where you begin to th think, is it really true? I wonder. Yes, it must be. Suddenly, one of her friends gave her a terrific clout on the head, upon which, in pain and shock, she yelled, Ouch! That's your head. There it is, her friend exclaimed. And immediately Enyadatta saw that she had deluded herself into thinking that she had lost her head 
when in fact she had always had it. To be jolted physically by the kyosaku or verbally by a perceptive teacher at the right time can bring about self-realization. Or it can be some, some sense impression that we hear or see. So any of the senses. When this happened, Enyadatta was so elated that she rushed around exclaiming, Oh, I've got it! I have my head after all! I'm so happy! It, it's uh, the, the joy is is um, something real, but at the same time, it's a little crazy to be happy about uh, discovering something that you'd never been without. Tani Roshi says, nor is it less odd to rejoice at the discovery of your essential nature, which you have never been without. The ecstasy is genuine enough, but your state of mind cannot be called natural until you have fully disabused yourself of the notion, I have become enlightened, or I have seen and have glimpsed my true nature. As her joy subsided, Enyadatta recovered from her half-mad state. When your delirium of delight recedes, taking with it all thoughts of realization, you then settle into a truly natural life, and one that where there is nothing odd about it. Until you reach this point, however, it is impossible to live in harmony with your environment or to continue on a course of true spiritual practice. So we have to kind of um, rid ourselves of the, of the sickness of um, thinking we've attained something. Sometimes, sometimes referred to as, as the stink of Zen. Rumi has another rich image for this, this uh, phenomenon. He says, um, There is a basket of fresh bread on your head, yet you go door to door asking for crusts. We saw these baskets uh, actually in Mexico. Um, they're like a like a big kind of shallow sombrero, which um, young men and women would wear on their heads, and they'd fill it up with whatever they were selling, and uh, walk around and carrying their load um, on this basket. And the point the point I guess is that you can when you've got this basket on your head, you can't see its contents. Or another analogy is when, you, when you're um, walking around looking for your glasses and all the time they're uh, on your head or in your pocket. So you, we can say that we have them, but if we don't know that we have them, then they're not much use to us. It's 
Isn't it just like Yajnadatta searching for his head on top of his head, thinking he has lost it? So it is with Buddhas and ordinary people. They are like water and its waves. Though they are not separated by as much as the width of a hair, because of one mistaken thought, I am ordinary, they think that enlightenment is difficult to realize. One mistaken thought. I'm ordinary. I'm, or I'm stuck. I'm a lost cause. I'm mediocre. Each, each of us has our own particular flavor of this. How we, how we um, reduce ourselves. And, and these, these thoughts can be very painful. Afflictions, really. But they're just mistaken thoughts. delusions delusions that have power only because we believe in them Basui says the way of Zen began without the establishment of any sect it is simply a religion that points to the one original mind of all Buddhas and ordinary people. This mind is nothing other than Buddha nature. To see this nature is what is meant by religious practice. When you realize your Buddha nature, wrong relationships will instantly disappear. Words will be of no concern. The dust of Dharma will not stain you. This is what is called Zen. Attaining Zen is becoming a Buddha. This real Buddha is none other than the heart of all beings, the master of seeing, hearing, and perceiving. Even, even the Dharma can stain us if we attach to it. So, so in, in, in authentic Zen, it's a matter of... Um, releasing, letting go of all our cherished ideas about things. Attaining Zen is becoming a Buddha. This real Buddha is none other than the heart of all beings, the master of seeing, hearing and perceiving. beautiful image to that we can become the heart of all beings the center of the universe that is everywhere a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere as, as one um, Mathematician put it, Nicholas of Cusa. Our suffering comes because we try to live out of a false center. And when we can realize this, this true center, then our lives come into sync with this great universe. Skipping forward now to another passage, um, one of the, one of the um, Basui's responses to letters. This, this is a letter written to Gesso Seiko, Lord of Aki, from Nakamura. I received your letter asking how you should practice in order to understand the phrase 
you must give life to the mind that has no dwelling place. This, um, this phrase, you must give life to the mind that has no dwelling place, is from the Diamond Sutra. It's one of the, the m most uh, well-known sayings from that sutra. And it was also taken up as a preliminary koan. Um, in our version of uh, the koans, it's translated with a slightly different emphasis. Arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. And and they both they sh there are lots of different translations of this phrase and and they each each one sh sort of shines a, a different light on the on the meaning. So we'll we'll um, we'll move between these two different translations as we go through this text. There is no particular approach to studying the way. Just look directly into your nature and don't get involved in diversions and the flower of your mind will bloom. Thus the sutra says, give life to the mind that has no dwelling place. Actually this, this phrase is a pretty good uh, pithy uh, summary of what Zen practice is and Buddhist teaching is. Give life to the mind that has no dwelling place. Arouse the mind without its abiding anywhere. This non-abiding is um, not getting stuck, not attaching to things. Not getting stuck, not attaching, but it's not something um, dead or, or flavorless. It's full of life. The tens of thousands of phrases uttered by the Buddhas and ancestors are just this one phrase. This mind is one's true nature, distinct from all forms. So we encounter all, all, all kinds of forms in our lives through our sense doors, smells, tastes, sensations on our skin, visual forms, colors, thought forms. But what is it that 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 um, transcends or or um, is the context for all of these forms that we experience? This mind is one's true nature distinct from all forms. Nature is the way, the way is Buddha and Buddha is mind. This mind is not inside and it is not outside and it is not in the middle. It is neither existence nor is it nothingness. It is neither non-existence nor non-nothingness. It isn't mind, Buddha or object. That's why it is called the mind that has no dwelling place. Try as hard as we might, we, we cannot pin this mind down. We cannot grasp it. As the old um, lady, the tea seller said, past mind is ungraspable, present mind is ungraspable, future mind is ungraspable. And then she asked Tokusan which mind he was going to use to eat his cake. Actually, she was quoting another um, passage from the Diamond Sutra, this sutra that is um, teaching on emptiness. Thus, 
This mind sees forms with the eyes and hears voices with the ears. You should simply study the master of these processes. An ancient master said, The physical body made up of the four elements cannot discern the sermon you are listening to. The spleen, stomach, liver and gallbladder cannot discern the sermon you are listening to. Empty space cannot discern the sermon you are listening to. What is it that can discern this sermon? Questioning in this way, look directly. This, these are the words of, of Linji Runzai. What is it that is doing the questioning? If, when you look, your mind clings to any form or you become attached to a particular meaning and you spend your time conceptualizing, you will be as far from the way as heaven is from earth. What do you do then to cut off the bonds of life and death? Advance and you'll get lost in reason. <coughs> Retreat and you'll violate the teaching. Neither advancing nor retreating. Be like a functioning corpse ceasing thinking immediately and practicing without restraint. Surely then you will attain enlightenment and give life to the mind that has no dwelling place. Then you will clarify incomparably uncommon teachings including all the koans and dharmas. Be like a, a functioning corpse. die to everything except the breath or sitting or the koan There's a beautiful Rumi poem that expresses this, this um, mind that has no dwelling place. And it's called uh, <coughs> Unmarked Boxes. Don't grieve. Anything you lose comes round in another form. The child weaned from mother's milk now drinks wine and honey mixed. God's joy moves from unmarked box to unmarked box, from cell to cell, as rainwater down into flower bed, as roses up from the ground. Now it looks like a place of rice and fish, now a cliff covered with vines. Now a, a horse being saddled. It hides within these till one day it cracks them open. Part of the self leaves the body when we sleep and changes shape. You might say, last night I was a cypress tree, a small bed of tulips, a field of grapevines. Then the phantasm goes away. You're back in the room. I don't want to make anyone fearful. Here's what's behind what I say. Ta-da-tum-tum, ta-tum, ta-da-dum. There is a light gold of wheat in the sun and the gold of bread made from that wheat. I have neither. I'm only talking about them as a town in the desert looks up at stars on a clear night.
We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.org. Auckland Zen dot org dot NZ.